Our gospel lesson is, comes from Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hands have, been, have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands." So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now, his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. The father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered the father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. And I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never even given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. May God bless this reading to our understanding. If you were visited by a Martian who asked you to explain this thing called Christianity, what would you say? I mean, you can't say we're an offshoot of Judaism because the Martian doesn't know what Judaism is, and you can't say, well, it's another one of the world's great religions. Many Americans practice this religion because the Martian doesn't know any of those categories. And so you will have to describe what Christianity really means to your life. And so what would you say? Perhaps an even harder question would be that if a new neighbor moves in next door, She's from California, and she asks you, you know, where's a good dry cleaner? Where do you go to the grocery store? And, oh, what church do you go to? And 
Tell me about the Christian faith that you practice there. Sometimes we even wonder aloud to ourselves, am I really a Christian? And if you answer yes, why? And if you answer no, why not? In his book, The Love That Is God, really a primer on the Christian faith, Professor Bauerschmidt says that he writes this primer on Christianity for two kinds of folks. One kind, those people who desire a more just and equitable world, who seek to live lives of kindness and compassion, and who want more to life than simply employment punctuated by a little entertainment. But these people are pretty unsure that Christianity has anything to say about these desires. And then there's this other group of people that he writes the book for, those who are sure that Christianity has something to say, but they don't really know how to articulate it. This sermon series called Christianity 101 aims to address both of these groups. It is for those of us who sometimes doubt our faith's usefulness, and for those of us who are absolutely certain about the power of our faith, but we don't really know how to put words to it. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Christianity is above all else about love, that in a way, Christianity is a laboratory or a studio where we practice what it means to love as God loves. And last week, we talked about the mystical side of our faith, how we practice this thing called Christianity because some mysterious ways of practicing the faith put us in touch with the divine spirit of God alive in our world today. And then today, we look at the third word, and that is the word turn. The scripture we just read is about a man who makes a dramatic U-turn in his life. He has broken with social convention by requesting in advance of his father's passing his full inheritance. He has now traveled to a far country, abandoned his religion, burned the bridges with his family. He has spent his last dime and is standing in the breadlines with other folks who have no 401ks. We often call this one in the text the prodigal son. And the word prodigal means one who is recklessly wasteful. The verse I want to focus on in this lengthy parable that Jesus tells is the part when Jesus tells us that this man who is so recklessly wasteful comes to himself. Some translations say he came to his senses. But either way, it's this turning point moment, the moment when the prodigal son turns and heads back home. This moment of turning reminds me of a friend of mine named Carol. She was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And upon her diagnosis, she decided that she would immerse herself in how to live with this disease. So she read a couple of books. One was Dancing in Limbo, and the other was Cancer as a turning point. Carol decided that this far country, this crisis, was a moment for her to turn and make some significant changes in her life, to return to her spiritual core, to return to her faith in God. During this period of her life, she wrote a letter to a mutual friend of ours. 
And she says in the letter, you know, all of my friends are upset about the upcoming presidential election, but I'm not going to worry about that. My doctor says I only have a couple of good more years. I'm not even going to live through the four-year term of whoever is elected. So, she said, what I'm focusing on is connecting with the people that I really love, the people I really care about, and I'm writing to you because you're one of those people. She says, I, I just remember the times that we shared together, especially when we were serving the Navajo people on a mission trip, and I wanted you to know that you are one of those people I truly care about. She signs the letter with great affection, Carol. Carol went on to live another 18 or 20 years through many presidential elections, but she was never the same again. Carol was a new version of herself. She turned, and in the middle of this far country, this life crisis called cancer, she began to walk in a new direction. She is so much like this man in the parable of the prodigal son in that she came to herself, turning back to the people that she held most dear in life. Now, we all know that the conventional wisdom is that people don't change. He's always going to be that way. Might as well accept it, we say, when he can't find his keys yet again. Or sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves. We, we try to change, but we just feel stuck. And so we keep repeating the same patterns that we adopted years ago, even though we yearn for a different kind of life. In the story of the prodigal son, the son repeats this speech, rehearses this speech to himself over and over again as he makes that long journey back home to his dad. I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy. He keeps repeating it. And sometimes we also keep repeating the speech, rehearsing it, but we never give it to the person we need to give it to. Mother, I'm sorry. I, I know I hurt you. God, I want to come back. Sometimes we never make the turn. Is it possible then to have our lives transformed? Or do we first need some kind of crisis moment? Is there a way that we can decide to turn? I think of a friend of mine who was emphatic with me when we first got acquainted. He told me that after his painful divorce, he had decided he would never, ever, ever, ever get married again. Oh, date, yes, maybe even have children, but he was never going to get married again. And about three years to the day after he told me that, I officiated at his wedding right here. Turn. People do turn. The popular author Anne Lamont grew up in a household with atheist parents. She saw that her friend's parents were Christian scientists and Jewish and Catholic, and she observed these different religions, but she knew that in her household they believed nothing. When she was 30 years old, she elected to end an unwanted pregnancy. She knew that she did not have either the money or the emotional strength to become a mom. And so she went home after the procedure. She crawled in bed, and she spent the next seven days and nights abusing drugs and alcohol. One night, she woke up and she thought, seems like Jesus is in this room. 
She turned on the light to see if someone was there. It seemed like Jesus was just patiently and lovingly watching her. She thought this must be an apparition, but the feeling was so strong that she decided to go to church. When she got to church, she was so hungover she could hardly stand up when it was time to sing the hymns. But by the time the benediction rolled around, she was sobbing. She scooted out the back door of the church. She raced home. She got to the houseboat where she was living, and she put her hand on the handle of the door, and before she opened it, she said aloud to God, Darn it, I quit. You can just come on in. But she didn't say darn it. This, she said, was her moment of conversion. She went inside the houseboat. She gathered up all the alcohol. She poured it down the drain. She filled a shoebox of drugs and tossed it overboard off the side of the houseboat. She started going to church, and she said when she went into church, she didn't really know how to talk to God, but she found that if she would just say, Hello, God, God would say hello back. Two years later, she was finally clean and sober. And a year after that, Anne was baptized. Two massive turns in one human life. What is it that empowers us to finally make a turn? Professor Bauerschmidt teaches undergraduates at Loyola and in the first weeks of the semester, he will say to the students, tell me, do your parents love you? And he knows it's a risky question because, of course, there are college students who come from households where there was not a, an abundance of unconditional love. But most of the students will say, oh, yeah, my parents love me. And he says, well, how do you know they love you? I mean, do you know it as a fact, like you know that George Washington was the first president of our country? Do you know it more as an opinion, like your opinion that KU has a good basketball team or the Chiefs are likely to do really well this year? Is that just your opinion? And, and the students say, well, we know that our parents love us because mom sends care packages and dad's always excited when I come home for the holidays and our parents are making these huge sacrifices so we can be here at college. And he says, well, maybe it's all a ruse. Maybe they don't really love you. I mean, how do you know for sure? And they become so frustrated with the professor. And they say, well, well, we just know. And that's when he tells them, that's how we know that God loves us. It is just a bedrock knowing that the gracious love of God is always there, pulling back the curtain, peering out the window, waiting and longing for us to turn back and come home to God. In Hebrew, the word turn is S-H-U-V, shuv. It means to turn around, to change direction, to go in a new way. This word in Hebrew Shuv, or turn, is the root word in the Bible for repent. So, you see, repentance is not so much saying, I'm sorry, as it is walking in a new direction. 
Scholar Ricky Moore says that in the Bible, this process of turning and repenting always presupposes a prior turn, and that is the turn that we took away from God. The turn, then, is not simply a course correction in our behavior. It is an altering life course change. You see, the prodigal son does not simply engage in a self-improvement plan. The prodigal son is claimed by God. As the woman finds the lost coin, so God finds the son. As the shepherd goes in search of the one lost sheep, so God goes out to claim the wayward son. He was dead and is now alive. He was lost and he is now found. The Christian life then is a series of turning points in which God claims us again and again and again as God's own and transforms us into living a new way of life, regardless of where we are in our own lives, regardless of what sin has held us captive, regardless of what secrets we keep hidden from one another. God longs to forgive us, to embrace us, and empower us to return into the fold of God's gracious love. And you know, it's not just an individual process. Even groups of people can change. This church is not the same church it was 100 years ago. In the 1950s, the church made a turn and made room for women at the table. And in our own nation, we are not the same nation we were 100 or 200 years ago. In the 1960s, we turned and wrote civil rights legislation that changed how we live as a country. In his book, God Has a Dream, Archbishop Desmond Tutu reflects on the massive change that his native South Africa went through as they went through a period of transformation. And he says, God has a dream. God says, please help me to realize it. It's a dream in a, of a world whose ugliness and squalor and poverty and war and hostility and greed and harsh competitiveness and alienation and harmony are changed into their glorious counterparts when there will be more laughter and joy and peace, where there will be justice and goodness and compassion and love and caring and sharing. Do we believe that such a turn is possible? Some of us do not. When the recklessly wasteful younger brother comes home, dad throws a lavish party the fatted calf is placed on the barbecue spit. The best band in town is hired. And that bedraggled son is outfitted in brand new set of party clothes to go to the celebration. But the older brother is furious. He stomps his feet. He sits down on a bench in the garage, refusing to participate in the party because, after all, it is not even fair that the one who broke all the rules and wandered off is now the guest of honor. Dad comes out. He sits down on the bench in the garage with the older son. He tries to convince the son, I love you and your brother. Can't you see? I just had to throw a party now that he's home. But the older brother cannot see. He is absorbed in self-righteousness. 
he sees no reason to turn and go inside. Barbara Brown Taylor describes it like this. She says, the righteous are like vaults. They are so full of their precious values and so defended against those who do not share them that even the dynamite of the gospel has little effect on them. Sometimes we can't even see that we need to change. In the novel Everlasting Life, there's this professor from the United States who goes over to Rome for his sabbatical where he's going to do some research. And he's wandering around the beautiful streets of Rome, and he realizes how much he misses his daughter back in the United States. She's a preteen, and, and he's so close to her, but he realizes he doesn't really miss his wife. And they've so drifted apart in recent years. While wandering around Rome, he makes a new friend, a new female friend, and there's a spark in their relationship. And he begins to wonder if he should go back to his marriage, if there's this deeper kind of love that he and his wife have not yet discovered, or if he should stay in Rome. At the end of the novel, he writes letters. In one letter, he writes to his new friend in Rome, and he says, it was so nice meeting you. I'll be taking a plane home on Saturday to return to my wife and daughter. In the other letter, he writes to his wife, and he says, I've decided to stay and live in Rome. And the novel tells us that he only mailed one of the letters. And that is how the parable also ends. We do not know if the elder brother turned. We are left hanging. It's our turn.